for this uh, beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you um, that we have the opportunity to worship you. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity of opening up your word and learning. And and Holy Spirit, I ask that uh, you would open up our ears to hear, our hearts to receive your word this morning. Um, Lord, that you would guide me, that you would uh, calm my nerves, that you would help me to to, to say what you want me to say. And uh, Lord, just boldly proclaim your word, which is truth and it's amazing, especially this section that we're gonna go through. So again, I thank you for this time. I ask that you bless it for your glory always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, our our passage this morning is going to be found in verses one through 11. We're guzzling all the water. So Philippians uh, chapter, this is bothering me. Okay. Uh, Chapter three. Verses 1 through 11. We're going to go ahead and kind of do what we've been doing. We're going to read the entire passage, get a bird's eye view, and then we're going to take our time enjoying the the little details. So starting at verse 1, let's read the whole passage. 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Good, good passage. Um, I have to often step back and realize when we open up this book that we're reading history. We're reading true history. This is not a, you know, a collection of fables and myths. This is not some giant science fiction novels that some creepy guy you know, just dreamed up because he had nothing else to do. This is true. This is a true story. This is a true narrative. And when, whenever we read uh, up certain names and people, it's like they represent, some of the names are even bizarre. I mean, I, can't even, I can hardly pronounce half of them, but they represent real men and women who lived at a specific time. 
You know, when we look at Philippians, we're reading a letter, a real letter, an ancient letter uh, by the Apostle Paul, a real man, a guy who existed in the first century. He was a teacher, preacher, church planter, and he's writing to a real church located in a real city at that time called Philippi. And what's, what's fascinating is uh, this letter was written probably around 60, 61 AD, and we're reading it in 20, 2021. And you could do the math. I'm not a math whiz. You could just do, that's a lot of years. Um, but what's fascinating is it's just as relevant today. What we read in Philippians is just as relevant today as when, we've, when it was first written to the Philippians back in 61, 60 AD. And the reason for that is because this is not just a book about God. This is a book from God that has been given to mankind. And God is eternal. His truth is always, he's an eternal God. He has truth. His truth is always timely. It's always going to be relevant. That's the beauty. That's the wonder, the mystery, the power, the miracle of this book right here that we hold in our hands or even on our phones. No other book can have that claim. And so when we open up this, this book, I mean, I understand this, this week, busy for us, for me, I know uh, in particular, and Jim's like, yes, it was busy. Uh, but it was also kind of, it was gloomy. It was gloomy. And I don't know, my wife is kind of, I don't like gloomy days. Well, why? Because it just makes you feel gloomy. And if you have other reasons to feel gloomy, it just is like a compound gloom, right? It's just gloomy on top of gloom. You know, and, and then some of you, maybe it's just been very busy, just like our, us and uh, hectic. And you've got other things. You're right now you're sitting and going, okay, it's the end of the week. I start Monday again. So there's a number of tasks that uh, need to get done. There's a couple of errands that I need to accomplish. And I got to do this and busy, 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 busy. And I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to say that that's not serious and that's not something um, that's not important in your life. What, what I want to do is, is remind you, and hopefully this reminder is encouraging, is that God knows about all those things. God knows what kind of week you've just had. God knows what kind of month you've just had. God knows what's going in your mind that you're getting a little bit overwhelmed maybe. But what he wants you to do is he wants you to take that, trust him, take all those cares, all those worries, all the busyness, whatever, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put it to the side because right now he wants to speak to you. This is God's word. When we, open up, when we open it up, we hear from God. And we have the privilege of actually doing that this morning. I'm like, that pumps me up. I don't know about you. Are you awake? I am. I'm only going off a few hours of sleep, but maybe because of the men's retreat, there's still testosterone in me or something. But it's just, I'm pumped about that. This is amazing what we get to do. And so before we get into this favorite passage, one of my favorite passages uh, of, of Philippians, I would like to kind of get ourselves prepared to kind of deal with Paul, what Paul's going to go through. So if you uh, go into the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, chapter 63. So Psalms chapter 63. And we're going to start at verse one. So Psalm 63, starting at verse one, this is a Psalm by King David. He says, God, you are my God. I shall be watching for you. In other translations, it says, I will earnestly seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and exhausted land where there is no water. Right off the bat, David is looking at this world and he sees it as a desert, this dry, desolate, barren wasteland. Now, when he says that, he's not saying that there isn't anything beautiful or or good in this world. I mean, God created it. He he created good things, beautiful things. And yes, it does suffer the effects of sin and evil and death and decay. But there's still beauty and there's still uh, wonderful things uh, in this world. But what, what David is saying is there's nothing in this world that compares to God. There's nothing in this world that gives me what I need. There's nothing in this world that is soul satisfying. It's this barren, dry, desolate place. If you've ever gone to a desert like Arizona, you know, that's where, because we were in Southern California, so we went to Arizona. And during the summer in in Arizona, I mean, during the winter times, fall, winter times, it's like perfect weather. It's like, you know, heaven kind of graces it, visits it for a little while, and the angels flap their wings, and a beautiful, you know, cool breeze flows through, you know, Phoenix area, Scottsdale, just beautiful weather. But then when the summer kids, you know, comes, that's when, like, the demons move in, and that's when it just turns hot. 120, 125 degrees, dry, oh, it's a dry heat, it's hot. It's like, you know, this is the surface of the sun, kind of hot. And if you've ever thought, well, let's go for a hike, you need to check your brain because that's not right in 125 degrees. You know, if you've ever done that, which I have, so I have to check my brain, but I was a little kid and I was being forced to uh, because, yeah, hiking in heat is not a fun time. That's death, right? You, you, You have this big, huge jug of water and by like just 20, 30 minutes, it's gone, and then your body, your mouth, you, you get what you call cotton mouth. Have you ever had that? It's like your body's reaction to like, I, I hate what you're doing to me right now. It's this thick stuff and it's like, oh, I'm drying right here. And you're, I need water. I need water. That's the imagery here of this world. David's like, there's nothing in this world that compares with you, God. There's nothing in this world that gives me what I truly need, that is soul satisfying. I I earnestly seek you. I thirst for you. My flesh yearns for you. Verse two, so I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory because your favor is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with fat and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. I love, love the language that David brings out here. It's just so heavy and deep and rich and real and raw and just in, intense, right? Very, very passionate right here. I, I, I watch for you. I earnestly seek you. I'm thirsting for you. I, my flesh yearns for you. I worship you. I I just can't, I have all of these opportunities to worship you and I take them. I just keep worshiping you, worshiping you. I find all these avenues to worship you. I can't stop thinking about you. I can't get enough of you. That's what David's saying. That's David's heart when it comes to his relationship with God, who God is. I can't get enough of you. My goodness. And when we read something like that, we've got to ask ourselves, what about our heart? Where's our heart? 
When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, where is our heart? Can we honestly echo this? Can we say, Jesus, you are my God. I earnestly seek after you. I, my, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. I worship you every day. I can't stop worshiping you. I can't stop talking about you. I can't stop thinking about you. I can't get enough of you. Is that where our heart is? Now, some people would say, well, you know, you know this is, this is a, a psalm and David was like the first emo artist. And so he was just kind of getting really dramatic and just, you know, just kind of uh, over-exaggerating to prove a point. But lest we think that, when we go back to our passage in Philippians, Paul's heart is the same as David's heart. In fact, when we read some of his language, we get the sense of the same passion, the same devotion that David has towards God. So let's go back to Philippians chapter three. So we've already taken a plane, gotten a bird's eye view of this passage. Now we've landed the plane and now we're gonna walk and bask in its glory. So Philippians chapter three. Um, so the, a little bit of review, because it's not that short of, uh, not that long of a letter, but uh, what inspired Paul to write this letter uh, is he's a prisoner. He's in Rome. Uh, he's awaiting trial. And in those days, the, 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 the guards were not responsible for taking care of prisoners' basic needs. And so they relied heavily on the contributions of their family and their friends. And so Paul's kind of in that same uh, predicament. And the church in Philippi hears of Paul's predicament. And they, even though they're not that wealthy of a church, put together a collection. And they say, send a guy, probably Epaphroditus, probably uh, with a, n- a number of other members from the church, to go deliver this gift uh, to, to, to Paul. They travel almost 800 miles, mostly on foot. So you can imagine how long that must have t- taken. It was a rough uh, a trip. Epaphroditus almost uh, gets sick and almost dies while trying to deliver. And, uh, but he arrives and he presents the gift and Paul is just overwhelmed by their generosity, by their love. And he hears the update of how the church is doing and the church is growing, it's maturing. They have already have a, a, a formal leadership of deacons and elders. He's just, oh, this is so good. It's not a perfect church. They still have things they need to work out, but he wants to write a letter back to them to say, you know, how much I appreciate the gift, how much I love you, how much I pray for you and care for you. And he's also going to give them some instructions. And when we get to chapter one, verse 27, he presents the main, the main point, the, the, the main command uh, that he's going to spend the rest of the, the, the letter kind of expanding on. And, and he says, you know, con- only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. That's chapter one, verse 27 of Philippians. The word conduct yourself literally means to be a citizen. And so it, uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. They were given that, uh, that ama- coveted title because of their allegiance uh, to uh, the emperor and, and they actually helped them in uh, significant battles. Um, but if you, the people who resided in this uh, Roman colony uh, nat- automatically became uh, Roman citizens. And there was a, a way that Roman citizens behaved. There was this rhetoric that they followed that was congruent or appropriate for those who say they're a Roman citizen. As followers of Jesus, we are citizens of God's eternal kingdom. 
And Paul brings that up in, in other areas. In chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to say, we're citizens of heaven. It's kind of that same idea. And so what Paul's saying is, as citizens of God's eternal kingdom, you are to live your life in such a way that is appropriate, that is fitting for those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those who say, oh, I follow Jesus. And what does that look like? Well, he goes further on and says, it looks like unity. It looks like fellowship, true fellowship, not just hanging out, true fellowship, which is partnership for the sake of the gospel. It looks like um, uh, thinking of others ahead of yourself, not being selfish, not being prideful. It's all, ultimately, it looks like humility. And the greatest example of that in chapter two is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest example of what humility looks like because Jesus uh, took on the, 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 the posture, the position of a, of a servant you know, Jesus said, the, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus took that. He was obedient to God the Father all the way even to when it led to his death on a cross. And so he's the ultimate example of what it means to be humble and we're to follow in, in on that example. And Paul brings up two other individuals at the, at the close of chapter two. Uh, he brings up Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's like, you want to know what that looks like? Look at these two guys. These are, are, are not perfect examples. Jesus is the only perfect example, but these are faithful examples of what it looks like for a citizen who walks worthy of the, of the gospel of Jesus, who walk in humility, who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so then uh, we get to chapter three and here Paul is, is coming towards the end of his letter and he begins by bringing up this word loipos. It's, 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 it's translated here, finally. It doesn't mean he's, he's, you know, oh, I'm coming to a close. Like, it doesn't mean a conclusion. You know, this, he's not closing up his letter right now. The word literally means to, means as to the rest. That's what the, that word means. It's basically, I'm wrapping up this letter, but I still have got some other things I need to say. And so he says, finally, my brethren, and he gives a command. The command is, Rejoice, right? Rejoice. And that means to, to be glad, to be joyful, to be merry, to celebrate. And in, in our country that proudly proclaims the inalienable right to pursue uh, happiness, this probably resonates with everybody. Oh, yes. Who doesn't want to be glad and joyful and merry and celebrate? This is what we want. Amen to that. But Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, Paul presents this command in what we call the present tense. It's not you to be rejoicing only on your anniversaries, only when good things happen. You are to be continually rejoicing. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. As you live your life, in any and every situation you encounter, you are rejoicing. It's like, well, well how in the world can we do that? He gives the answer, just keep on reading. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the... All right, three people are in on this. Okay, Rejoice in on the Lord. Yes, that's the key. That's the key. That's the source of ultimate joy. Joy is a big theme in this entire letter. He brings it up over and over and over again. He even says, I'm joyful. I'm joyful. I want you to be joyful, which is ironic because Paul, you're in prison. You're awaiting your trial. How can you be joyful? And we talked about this. There's a big difference between happiness and joy, right? Happiness has to deal with your circumstance. You just came in this morning, you saw someone you love, you gave them a hug, you're happy. You go into the, the, the little snack area, you see some cake and you're like, I'm happy. You know, this sermon is gonna be probably shorter than most. You're gonna be happy, 
Right? <laughs> Yay! Wow. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Or, um, <laughs> but those are happy moments, you know. Joy is is a lot more weightier than that. Joy is something that can be experienced regardless of how the situation is. You can be going through a horrible trial. You can be going through pain, struggle, whatever, and you can still experience joy. How? Rejoice in the Lord. That's where it is. That's the focus. That's where we find the joy. It's not in us. It's not in us. We, the, the world will say, oh, you just need to make yourself happy. Oh yeah, go ahead and try that. Maybe it lasts for a little while, but it doesn't last long. It's not this sustainable, soul-satisfying joy that we're looking for. We find that joy in Jesus. We don't find that in, in other things, in other people, as good as, as I, much as I love my wife, my kids and family members and you guys. You guys are not my ultimate source of joy. Sorry, hate to be a buzzkill, but you're not. My ultimate source of joy is, yeah. <laughs> John's like, how about me? <laughs> Everyone go, oh, sorry, John. Sorry. Marie loves you. Uh, the rest of us tolerate you. Um, moving on. <laughs> Our ultimate source of joy is found in Jesus. That's where we're supposed to find it. Paul's like, that's the only way you want to experience that joy that everyone's looking for. You find it in Jesus. He continues on. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. I'm not hesitant to write this all out again. I'm not, I'm not uh, irritated that I'm repeating myself. He says, and it's a safeguard. It's a, it's a secure, certain, firm, steady, immovable guardrail for you. Protection for you. Paul knew one song and he sang that song over and over again. And that was the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. He was a, on repeat the, his whole life. The gospel. The gospel is actually, a, it comes from a Greek word, euangelion. It's, it, um, it, it just simply means good news. It, 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 it was, uh, in the Roman world, uh, the gospel was the, the announcement of a victory another Roman victory. It was the announcement that the empire was still standing strong. It was that the emperor was still ruling and reigning. G, uh, uh, Paul takes that same uh, uh, word and he, he switches in. He's like, no, no, no. The, the, the true good news uh, is that Jesus has claimed victory over Satan, sin, and death. The, the true good news is that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. He's brought the kingdom that we can be a part of through salvation, which is a free gift. And one day Jesus is coming back as our king and he's gonna establish his kingdom forever. That is the good news. And he repeated that over and over and over again. And the, he, the implications of what that looks like to, to live out in light of the good news. I mean, the things that Paul has been writing in this letter, the Philippians could easily say, we've heard this before. This isn't anything new. You've told us. And Paul's like, I know. I don't mind. I don't mind repeating myself over and over. There are some people who will make a decision not to go to a church or go listen to a sermon or a Bible study because they're like, I've already heard this before. Why do I want to go? I want to hear something new. Well, I then go down a couple of mile or a couple of feet down there to a, a building, supposed congregation that's teaching new stuff. But it's not the stuff that you need. It's the stuff that's demonic, evil. 
Paul's like, I, I, I'm, I'm okay repeating myself and I don't care if you get frustrated with me because I'm repeating myself. When I know, when you're frustrated, frustrated with me, that's when I know it's starting to stick. Have you noticed that? Someone repeats something over and over again and the priest and you're like, oh my goodness, he's saying this again. But it's now part of you. You think about it, it's just you're now absorbed and steeped into it, which is why I repeat myself a lot of times too. I'm just following a good example. I'm like, you know, I'm not that great of a preacher. I'm gonna follow the best preacher I can't think of. But anyways, he's like, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, um, scared or nervous to repeat myself. It is a safeguard for you. It is a protection, a firm, immovable protection for you. Uh, in, the, in the first century, uh, Paul dealt with a, a group of, well, many individuals who caused a lot of mayhem in the churches, but one group in particular um, kind of pretty much annoyed him a lot. I mean, they, wherever Paul was, he, they, this group would always follow along. They were called the, the Judaizers. They were a group of men and women um, uh, who were Jewish or they were Gentiles who converted to, uh, to uh, Judaism. And uh, they, while they uh, acknowledged that Jesus was the promised Messiah and King, they did not accept the way to salvation which is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through trusting in Jesus Christ. No, they said, in, in order to truly be saved, you need to become Jewish. And for a man, that meant being circumcised. So any volunteers on that? You know, not, and, and then that, that, that brought you into the, you know, the in, that brought you into the club. You, you're part of the, the covenant people. You're part of the people of God. And it's what separates you from, from you know, us to them and the Gentiles. And, and, and that's what you need to do. And, and then once you, get circumcised, you also have to follow the Torah. You have to follow the law. You have to follow the dietary uh, rules and, and, and the celebrations and other rituals. And on top of that, you got to also obey the, the, the oral traditions. These traditions that have been passed down for centuries, they're good. We got, you got to follow all of that stuff. And that's when you'll be truly saved. Paul would refer to that as a false gospel. It's not the true good news. It's a, that's, that's, a, that's an incorrect good news you do not want to listen to. It's a, it's a dangerous uh, a gospel to, to obey. Um, Paul, Paul uh, um, describes in, in, in Galatians, um, he's, he's, referring, he's dealing with the, this group, the, the Judaizers, and he's letting them know, like, if anyone comes to you, if any of us, apostles or disciples, or even an angel comes and proclaims a different gospel than the one that we've told, let them be accursed. It's like, ooh, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. This group, mm, the lights came on. Um, mm, thought, yeah, never mind. Um, th this group was very dangerous. The reason why this group was particularly dangerous is because they were, it was very easy for the Judaizers to infiltrate the church. Why? Because they looked like Christians. They sounded like Christians. They sang the same worship songs as Christians. They prayed the same prayers like Christians. You know, they took part in the same things that Christians take part in, but they were not true followers of Jesus. They're promoting this false gospel. And so Paul, in verse two, gives a warning. It's a command, but it's, it's, it's a warning as well. And he repeats it three times in case you didn't get it the first time. And it's the Greek word blepo, which means translated beware. It also means to look, to watch out for, to be on the alert, to, 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 um, to, to um, what is it? To stand guard. 
And, 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 and he presents this in the present tense, so it's, you're not supposed to just stand on your guard once, once or occasionally. You're to continually be where, watching out for, looking out for these individuals. And he uses three choice words to describe them. The first one he says is, beware of the dogs. And we think, oh, Paul, what's wrong with dogs? Aren't they those cute, cuddly things that we put on our lap and they sleep next to us and we put in dress and sweaters and push around in a wagon or stroller, you know? Which, by the way, if you decide to push your animal in a stroller, please put a warning on that stroller that we're carrying a dog. My wife and I, we were one time, I forget where we were, but uh, I saw a couple pushing a stroller and uh, it's the father in me. I want to kind of take a peek and see the baby. And so I'm like, there's the baby. Okay, oh, what an ugly baby. You know, I, I didn't say it out loud. Thank God. I didn't say it out loud, but in my spirit, I felt, and I felt bad because, you know, you heard the expression, there is no such thing as an ugly baby. I just found one. You know, I was like, oh God, it's all shriveled and hairy. This is just, and my heart was just, it, it shocked me. But then I realized, oh, it's a dog chewing on like a meat pacifier wrapped in blankets kind of thing. I was like, you need to have a warning if you're going to do that. So yeah, you're, it's a free country. You can go ahead and do that, but put a warning, caring dog. Don't scare me again. Um, but the, the word, you know, yes, in the first century, you did have domesticated animals, but dogs in particular were considered to be, you know, dirty. They were scavengers. Uh, they were, in some cases, very dangerous. So these animals, you just didn't want to deal with. You wanted to see a pack of dogs, stay away. Uh, for, for the Jews and Judaizers, this, they used this word because dogs were unclean animals to them because they would eat anything. They would roll around in anything. But they would use this word uh, as a derogatory term to describe the Gentiles. Like those dogs, they're not one of us. They're not God's people. They're unholy, they're dirty, they're wicked, dangerous. Those are dogs. But Paul takes that term and reverses it and says, no, you Judaizers are dogs. Like a boss. That's like, that's like fist pump worthy, right? <laughs> Fred? It's like, they're dogs, those are the dogs. Those are the ones you want to work at, uh, uh, be aware of. He, could, he, he repeats the command again. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who work evil, who labor. The, these individuals, these Judaizers were very devoted to their cause. They worked, very ti- they worked tirelessly to proclaim their gospel, their way to salvation. But ultimately what they were promoting was really pride. It was like, you need to do all this stuff and then you can, you know, as Jack would say, put your hands behind your, you know, your suspenders and say, look what I've done. Look at my achievements. I follow the law. I follow the traditions. I'm circumcised, which I guess that was a conversation that you talked to about that time. It's first century, different, different culture nowadays. But the truth is they were not workers of God. They were workers of evil. They were not out to, for the glory, they were not promoting uh, out there teaching for the glory of God. They were followers of the enemy. They weren't uh, teaching godly things. They were teaching demonic things. And so Paul's like, these are not only dogs, but these are evil workers and you need to watch out for them. Beware of them. 
And then the final term, he says, beware of the false circumcision. This is a Greek word, katatome. This is a, um, literally means to mutilate or mutilation. Uh, it was a term that the Jews and the Judaizers would use to describe the, the pagan Gentiles who would literally take shards of glass or pottery or knives and they literally cut themselves in various ways, different parts of their body to show their devotion to their gods. The more bloodier, the more gorier, the, be- the better. There's pictures in you know, mosaics of some cutting their heads because heads, you know, head wounds bleed the most. And it was basically a way to get attention. Like, look, look at me, gods and goddesses. Look how devoted I am to you. I'm literally cutting myself. Pay attention to me. Answer my prayers. And for the Jews and the Judaizers, like, that's disgusting. They're just mutilating themselves. And Paul's saying, well, that's what you guys do. You guys are all about circumcision. Men, you need to be circumcised if you want to be part of the covenant, you know, community of God and, and you want to be saved. You got to do that. It's like, you're no different than they. Because that's just cutting flesh. That's just, you know, cutting something, some piece off of your body. What circumcision ultimately represented was a spiritual circumcision. We, we hear that in the, in the New Testament that it's literally a cutting, a removing away of our, our old self, our old identity. You know, we are no longer, because if we put our faith and trust in Christ, uh, our identity as a sinner gets replaced with our new identity in Christ and as a saint. We are no longer children of wrath. Uh, uh, we, we are children of God. We are no longer the recipients of, of, of judgment. We're the recipients of blessing. It's an incredible thing. He says, but these people... We're focusing on the wrong thing. They're focusing on this external, this external uh, uh, act that they thought would get God's attention, that would would uh, uh, ensure their salvation. So they're just mutilating themselves. Beware of these people. Watch out for them. Be vigilant. Beware of these dogs, these evil workers, these false circumcision. Verse three, he says, for we are the true circumcision. And it almost seems like there's a play on words because uh, false circumcision is the word katatome. Uh, circumcision that he puts, when he says true circumcision is the word peritome. Katatome, peritome. It's like almost like a play on words there. Um, but peritome just literally means to cut around. Um, and again, this is going back to the fact that it's, it's a spiritual thing is when we follow Jesus Christ, uh, our old self has been cut away. That's our old identity is gone. Paul says that you are a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new. And and, and when he says, um, for we are, he uses the Greek word eimi, which means to be or to exist. And he puts that in the present tense. This is what a true Christian looks like. This is who a true Christian is, actually. A true Christian is continually... This, uh, the true circumcision, if that makes sense. They, are contru- they, they, they continually exist as the true circumcision, as those who have been uh, transformed, who have been created new. And then he goes on to describe three characteristics or um, markers of a true Christian. So true Christians are continually existing as the true circumcision. That is our identity in Christ. And what that looks like is uh, we are constantly or continually worshiping in the spirit of God. When, when Jesus uh, was with his disciples, and he was about to, to die and he was going to go. And he said, when I go, I'm going to send you uh, another helper, 
Uh, it's the Greek word parakletos. It's the, it's the idea of someone who comes alongside you to help you, to advise you, to encourage you, to advocate for you. And that's the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit, what, what Jesus was to the disciples, the Holy Spirit was going to be for the church. And so for us who are followers of Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, if you don't have the, the Holy Spirit, you're not truly saved. True uh, 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 Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling their lives. And as a result, he brings up this word worship. The, the word there, worship, um, doesn't only refer to what you do in church or like you're reading your Bibles or anything like that. It has to do with your life. And that's what Paul brings up a lot of times. He says, you know, you, you are to offer your life as a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual act of worship. That, that whatever, whatever you do, whether you're eating, you're sleeping, whatever you're doing is an opportunity to worship the Lord. So as I was a young kid, um, you know, I had a, in, in our Sunday school class, uh, well-meaning individuals, but they, were, they, they taught the wrong thing in, in regards to, uh, you might've heard sacred and secular areas of your life. You know, you got the sa- secular area of your life has to do with going to school, hanging out with your friends, visiting family members, going to, you know, work and, and that kind of thing. Just living life, that's your secular world. Um, your sacred part of your life is going to church, a Bible study, reading your Bible, praying, talking about God with other people. That's your sacred part of life. And, and the, 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 the teaching was focus more on the sacred parts of your life instead of the secular part of your life. But in the Bible, there's no such thing as that. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And so everything is sacred. Everything can be used for the glory of God. Everything can be used to worship him, which if that's true, and that is true, that should significantly change the way you live. It should dramatically change the way you live. What you prioritize, what you value, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, if everything, your entire life is an act of worship, is an, act to, is, is an opportunity to glorify God, that should change your life. And Christians recognize this. We, true Christians, are continually worshiping in the spirit of God. The second, he says, and glory in Christ Jesus. The word for glory literally means to show off verbally. It's like getting a megaphone and boasting in someone. In other words, it's, it's the idea of Christians are continually displaying or publicly proclaiming how awesome Jesus is. This is the mark of a true Christian. Not only are they continually seeing opportunities in life as a, you know, to, to worship and glorify God, they, they can't stop talking about how awesome Jesus is. You can't get Christians to shut up about him. Um, my wife was a part of a, a homeschool group in California and um, was kind of, and she was, came home one time. She's like, it's kind of sad when she was talk, having conversation with some of the moms is, you know, she loves her kids. You know, she loves diving into the different curriculum and how to teach the kids in different creative ways. And she, she enjoys all that. But ultimately she was telling me, it's like, I love Jesus. And so whenever I'm talking with people, I bring him up a lot. And some of the ladies were kind of like, can we just like talk about normal stuff? Do we really have to bring Jesus right up right now? And it's sad. It's like, if Jesus is a part of your life, how can you not stop talking about him? The mark of a true Christian is one who glories in Christ Jesus all the time, bringing him up. 
boasting in him. Paul even says, you cannot boast in yourself, you boast in the Lord. And finally, he says, and puts no confidence in the flesh. Not only are Christians continually worshiping in the spirit of God, their whole life is an act of worship and can be used to glorify him. But they, they just continually to publicly display and proclaim Jesus and they, they don't put their assurance and, and, um, uh, and trust in what they do, in their accomplishments, in the things of the flesh. That's what the Judaizers did. Look what we do. Look how we, you know, obey the law. Look how we follow the traditions. They put their confidence in them. Paul's like, that's not what Christians do. Christians, from the moment they're saved, recognize they've got nothing to bring to God. They've got nothing to impress him. We're sinners deserving of judgment, wrath, all that. No blessing, no goodness. We recognize that, and true Christians recognize it not only when they're saved, but we keep on recognizing that. I used that term last week, all that in a bag of chips. You're like, I never heard that expression, but that's kind of what it means. Like, I'm, look how amazing I am. I'm all that, plus a bag of chips. Like, I'm extra, even more awesome. Paul's like, no, true Christians do not put confidence in the flesh. But look, in verse four, he says, although I myself, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Paul is, is, is most likely aware that there are individuals in Philippi, maybe even Judaizers who've already infiltrated the church who are thinking this way. I could put confidence. I have a pretty darn good resume. So Paul continues, if anyone else has a mind or if anyone else is, is uh, supposes, presumes, has the opinion to put confidence or to rely on the flesh, the things that they have done, Paul says, I more, far more. I to the greater degree, to the greatest extent. So basically Paul's saying, you wanna go ahead and play the resume game? Bring it on because you're gonna lose. And so starting in verse five and through six, he gives his resume. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now again, our 2021 eyes go, what's the big deal about this resume? You know, it doesn't, it, there's no really no significance. But in the first century, this is huge. If you were Jewish or if you were a Judaizer, this is what you wanted. This is the kind of resume you aspired for. If you achieved what, just half of what Paul achieved, you would die a happy man. Paul goes on, you know, he, he, so let's look, at, let, let's look at these little areas of Paul's life, part of his resume. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, literally eighth day circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of faithfulness to the Torah and a distinguishing mark that separated Jews and Gentiles. It was considered a holy ritual that proved you were in the club. Now, uh, those who converted to Judaism were, most majority of them were circumcised as adults. Another sect, the Ishmaelites were circumcised at 13 years old. Paul's like, I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, booyah. That's basically what he's saying. You got nothing on me. I, I was circumcised on the eighth day. On top of that, he says, of the nation of Israel, or literally out of, or originating from the nation of Israel. Anyone could choose, in the first century, could choose to become Jewish. It was like, they would call them proselytes, or proselytes, yeah, 
Anyone could become Jew. But they had no bloodline or tie to God's chosen people. Paul is like, I can make that claim. I'm actually from, I originate from the nation of Israel. So not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, but I'm also from the nation of Israel, which is really significant. And he gets even more. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Out of all the tribes, Benjamin, along with Judah, remained faithful to the Davidic dynasty. And even after the, the kingdom split, they were still very faithful. It was in the, the, this, the, the territory of, of um, Benjamin where Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem resided. And in Jerusalem, the temple where God's uh, presence dwelt among his people. And so here, Paul is saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, this well-known, respected tribe. I am a pure blood Jew. That was something not many people could make, especially the Judaizers. They couldn't make that claim. Paul's like, that's who I am. I can trace my lineage all the way to people who are Benjaminites. Can you do that? He's like, whoa. That's pretty impressive. Then he goes on, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In the first century, Rome was, was the dominant culture. And uh, one of the things that they required all a- educational facilities was uh, to teach what they called Greco-Roman rhetoric. It was Greco because it was started by the Greeks and then the Romans assumed it. Um, but without getting to a lot of details, it was basically um, the whole purpose of Greco-Roman instruction. And again, every educational system had to, was required by law in, in, under Roman government to teach this. The whole purpose was assimilation. They didn't just want to get people to be, you know, uh, speak like Romans, write letters like Romans and behave like Romans. They wanted them to become Romans. That was the whole purpose. We indoctrinate you. We're training you up to become a Roman. And as a result Many of the, the, the nations, the, the, the nations that were conquered, lost their heritage, who they were as a people. And uh, it's true for even the Jews under Roman law. It's just because they were scattered because of all this stuff that was going on. Many of them had lost their heritage. And Paul's like, I never did. Not only was I you know, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, can trace my lineage all the way back to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, but I was born by Hebrew parents and they taught me the ways of Hebrews, who true Hebrews are to be. I, can, I didn't only just read uh, uh, um, the, the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the Torah. I read it in its original language. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he goes on. As to the law, a Pharisee. The word Pharisee comes from the Aramaic word that means the separated ones. Basically, when the Roman government came, um, assumed control, uh, you had two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, and, and the Sadducees uh, kind of were, well, if you can't beat them, join them. They, they, kind of, they made compromises. They built elite alliances with Rome because it's like, Rome is here to stay. I might as well just make it work. 
Whereas the Pharisees were like, no, 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 they're, they're, they're evil, they're, un, they're, you know, they're Gentiles, they're bad, they're, they don't belong here, we need to get them out. And so they uh, adopted this uh, um, strict observance of the law and the traditions. And the idea was if we follow the law uh, to the T, uh, then the Messiah will come and deal with the Romans. And that these Pharisees uh, ended up becoming in the first century uh, no, almost like the scholars of their day, the well-respected scholars. So like even before uh, um, Paul um, was born, there was uh, two uh, Pharisees, uh, Hamal and Shammai. And uh, they had, one of them was a little bit more legalistic, one was a little bit more loosey-goosey. Um, but decades after they had already passed, they, you know, passed away, people were still bringing up their name. Oh, Shammai, oh, Hamal, or uh, Halal, I think, Halal, Hamal, Halal. I forget, I got the names. But they bring up their, their names over and over again with this reverence and respect and honor. And, 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 and Paul, in, in Paul's day, there was a, another respected a Pharisee known as Gamaliel. And his father was another respected uh, uh, Pharisee. And Paul studied with this respected Pharisee, and he himself became one of these respected Pharisees. So he's like, again, circumcised on the eighth day, nation of Israel, trace my lineage back to Benjamin. I'm a pure blood Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I did not lose. Despite the Roman occupation, I have not lost my roots, my identity as a people. He says, also, I'm a Pharisee. I studied I'm one of those scholars. In verse six, he says, as to zeal, this idea of excessive fervorance, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, Paul was an extremist when it came down to his beliefs. He was so passionate about following the law, following what the, the traditions and this new sect uh, called Christians. He just didn't mix. And so he was passionately pursuing them getting them arrested. He observed the, the, the death of, of one of its leaders. He was passionate about what he did. He says, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. The word he uses for righteous is dikaiosune. It's a legal term that means you're standing before a judge and the judge looks at you and declares you in the right. Um, now, what Paul's saying here is not that he was saved because he observed the law. What he was saying is that you could not charge me with not obeying the rules. I was blameless. I followed the rules. You could not say I, I didn't. Very, very impressive. Very impressive resume. But look what he says, verse seven. But whatever things were gained to me, Whatever things I thought was of profit, of advantage, of benefit to me. And again, this resume, gain, profit, amazing. He said, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So it's like he, Paul's uh, using language of an, a banker, an accountant. You know, accountant weighs what is profitable, what is loss. And, and Paul's like, you know, all my resume, which many people would say, man, that's profit. That's amazing. That's what I aspire for. Paul says, no, I, I count it all loss. In fact, when he uses the word loss, uh, it's, it's, he's putting it, he's not saying it in the plural. He's saying it in the singular. He's, he's lumping it all, 
all of his accolades, all of his achievements, he's putting it all wrapped up in one bow and he's saying, I count it all lost compared to Jesus for the sake of Christ. Verse eight, more than that, in that section right there, there's a number of Greek words putting, put together in order to add emphasis. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value, in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see the passion right there. Similar to what David was saying, I, I, can't, I, I can't stop thinking of you. I, he sees the value of God in, in, in the Psalm 63. Here Paul's like, compared to everything in his life, all the achievements, all the accolades, all the prestige, all the respect, all the honor he's ever received, all of it doesn't compare to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a, a business term to experience detriment, to receive damage, to forfeit, to cast away, to lose. I have suffered the loss of all things. And when he says all things, he puts a definite article. So it literally reads the all things. There's emphasis there. I didn't just lose all things. I lost the all things. Paul grew up in Tarsus. Tarsus was a pretty well-to-do city. It, was, it wasn't a, a poor city. It was a pretty, fairly wealthy city. And it was almost like a college town. You had a lot of educational uh, structures and programs going on in the, in the city. And Paul could have been raised in a pretty wealthy, affluent family. His parents were able to provide you know, for him to go to the best schools ever. So he went to those schools and he excelled in those schools. He got all passed them with fly all you know with flying colors above everyone else he graduated the top of his class he went to go study under Gamaliel one of the top leading scholars of his day he himself becomes a religious scholar a pharisee and no doubt you know there was money involved no doubt there was that respect from not only the people he served you know who served under him but the thing about going to family get-togethers, oh, there's Paul. Mommy and daddy are so proud of him. The neighbors speak of him. Siblings speak of him. Friends speak of him. That's good. It's a great life. Oh, man, I, who wouldn't want something like that, that recognition? Paul's like, because of my, my connection with Christ, I suffered loss of all things. I lost it all. I lost all that money. I lost all that respect. I mean, we don't have all the details, but if you think about it, what about his mom and dad, if they were still alive? Oh, they disowned me. They cut me off. What about your family? They don't speak of me. In fact, it's like they pretend I don't, they never was even born. What about your neighbors? Oh, they hate me. Wow. Think of the most respected individual today. I mean, you can think of other, you know, people fall, flash into your mind. The most respected individual today. 
And maybe you may not find them respectable, but the rest of the world sees, wow, these, these guys have made it. These people, this is my goal. I want to be just like them. That was Paul. And Paul says, I lost it all. But did, 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 did it, was it worth it? Did he care? He says, I've lost all things and I count them but rubbish. He uses the Greek word skubalon. It's a fun word, skubalon. And it means waste. It literally means the, the, the sweepings, like if you're sweeping uh, a room and whatever gets collected in that dustpan, that's skubalon. It's not something that you really care about, something that you're going to throw away. Um, it was also used to des- describe uh, waste, like animal and human waste. That's all scubalon. It wasn't a curse word, but it was definitely not a word that you would bring up at the dinner table. It was not appropriate to bring up at the dinner table. Paul's like, that's what I think. I look at my entire, my resume. It's what Jews and Judaizers dream about. Half of them would just, you know, wish to achieve half of the list that Paul lists here. But he achieved that and then some. He's like, I count it all scubalon. It's nothing compared to the surpassing value, the worth of knowing Jesus. When, when my, my wife and I, uh, we just had Caleb um, and uh, we were new parents and just learning new things and we've, we, we discovered, uh, what is it, uh, blowouts, diaper blowouts, you know those things, diaper blowouts. And uh, we were, had a rough week and we had this thing called money. And so we were like, let's go out. Let's just get out of it. We just need to drive. And so we drove really, really far, maybe like half a, an hour away. And we got out and we go into the back seat where Caleb was sleeping. Devastation. It literally went on his head right here. Right there. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a person who understands, you know, I, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything, but I kind of understand anatomy and where that stuff comes from. And the fact that it was right here, all over his head, right here. And it wasn't as if it just like shot out of the, the diaper. No, it had filled the diaper. And then I guess with tremendous pressure, like a, I don't know what, just shot right out. And it was just all over his back, all over his clothes, all over his head. It was awful. Now, what if I were to take that dirty, you know, filled up diaper, dirty clothes, and I were to proudly display that on my mantelpiece? Yeah, that's cuckoo. (laughs) Basically, what Paul's saying is, That's how I view all my achievements. A lot of people work really, really hard to get their doctorate, to get their master's and everything. And they proudly display it in their rooms. And, oh man, I worked really hard for that. Paul worked really hard to get where he was. Really hard, make no mistake. He was the best of the best at what he did. But he said, you know what? It's just like that. It's all scubalon compared to knowing who Jesus is. So I lost everything. 
Why, Paul? Why would you lose everything? He continues on verse eight, so that I may gain Christ, that I may acquire Christ, that I may profit Christ and may be found in him. Not just right now, but even when Christ comes back to still be discovered that I'm with him, serving him, going to be with him forever. Not having a righteousness from my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The word he uses for faith is the Greek, is the Greek word pistis. And it's a very interesting word. A long time ago, a bunch of scholars, when they were trying to translate the Greek, uh, the Greek New Testament, uh, they were trying to figure out how to really translate this word, pistis. And they debated, and it wasn't a horrible debate. They're just kind of discussing, and it kind of fell between faithfulness and faith. How do we, dis- you know, and so they ended up just going with, with faith. But this word um, is found in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk says, the righteous will live by faith. And the, the, the translation of that Hebrew word has to do with not only faith or trust, but also loyalty, this idea of faithfulness as well. See, the problem is when we see this word faith, sometimes we use it as a synonym for belief. It's much more than that. Does it include belief? Yes. Does it include trust? Yes. But also includes loyalty. You're not just trusting and believing in in, in Jesus. You are also devoted and loyal to Jesus. That belief fuels your, your, um, your life. Does that make sense? That's the kind of righteousness that, that's, that's, that's what brings about the righteousness that the Judaizers were wanting, this idea to stand before God as righteous. That only comes from faith, trusting in him. Verse 10, that I may know him. Again, this is the Greek, Greek word, the, the gnosko. It doesn't mean just academic knowledge because a lot of people can have academic knowledge of Jesus but it doesn't mean anything. This has to do with a personal knowledge of Jesus. Think of it this way. If you've ever gone to like the Pacific Ocean and if you just dipped your toe into the Pacific Ocean, could you honestly say, oh, I know, I know the Pacific Ocean. I know the Pacific Ocean through and through. My toe has been there. And that doesn't make any sense. No, it's this idea of, of, of diving in. In order to really know the ocean, you got to dive in. You've got to experience it personally, right? Yes, yeah, jump in right there and enjoy the cold, especially in Oregon coast. But that's this idea of knowing, to know him, to personally know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, the same, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead resides in us. It's amazing. And the fellowship of his sufferings. The, the, he uses the word koinonia, this idea of partnership in his sufferings, being conformed in his death, literally sharing the experience of his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. It's meaning Jesus is coming one, you know, one day Jesus is coming and when he comes, he's going to right every wrong. He's going to establish his kingdom. And then we who follow Christ, who trust in Christ, we are going to be with him forever and ever. He, we are going to be his people. He is going to be our God and our king forever and ever and ever. That's awesome. Paul, how can you look at your resume, look at all the things that you've accomplished and call it all scubalon? 
Jesus. Because Jesus is far more amazing, far more fulfilling and soul-satisfying than any of those things. And so I count it all rubbish. I'm okay letting it go, losing everything, being all by myself, suffering through all the trials that I've suffered, being right now in prison, chained to a Roman guard, not knowing if I'm gonna live or die. I don't care so long as I gain Christ. So long as I know Christ, so long as I get to live for Christ, that's all that matters. Again, where is our heart when it comes to Jesus? And I know I'm going really long here. So I'm, gonna, I'm wrapping up. I'm closing up right now. So you can believe that. Where is our heart when it comes to Jesus? We looked at David's heart. We looked at Paul's heart. David was like, I can't get enough of you, God. I yearn for you. I thirst for you. You are so satisfying to me. We looked at this passage from Paul. Paul's like, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing uh, uh, value of worth of knowing Jesus, living for Jesus, serving Jesus. It's all amazing. Do you see your, do you see everything in your life? And I mean Everything as lost compared to knowing Jesus. And we gotta be honest about this. When I say everything, I mean your spouse, your children, your mother, your father, your friends, the people in this room, your job, your house, your cars, people's opinion of you, the respect you get at work, the, the honor that you receive from others, are you willing to see all of that as loss, as scubalon compared to knowing who Jesus is? That's pretty heavy. Many, a couple, well, not many, a couple of years ago, a wee group of us went through this Bible study uh, going through the book of Philippians. And um, when we came to this passage, uh, I think it was Naomi. So here, everyone, this is a great illustration from Naomi. But um, picture this. Jesus comes and visits you and says, guess what? We're going to Disney World. And, you know, I I bought the VIP pass, you know, and and we're going to be there for two weeks. We're going to go to all the the, the worlds or the kingdoms there and and VIP treatment the whole way through. All our food is going to be paid for. We're going to be able to eat at the best, most expensive places, see all the rides, all the attractions. It's going to be amazing. Now, if your response is, your first response is, cool, I get to go to Disney World. You've just missed the whole reason, the whole purpose for that visit. The whole purpose is that you get to be with Jesus. All that other stuff is just fluff. When we think about what we're, what, what's going to happen, eternity, God's kingdom, and you read about the end of Revelation, no more weeping, no more crying. That's amazing stuff. I can't wait for that to happen. But really, that's just fluff. What's going to be amazing is the fact that we get to be with Jesus, that he's going to be our king. We're going to walk with him and talk with him. That's the most amazing thing. As a parent, we've, I've had conversations with other parents 
And, you know, they all have, oh, I want my kids to go to the best schools. I want them to get the best jobs. I want them to buy a house. I want them to be able to experience things and, you know, walk the Grand Canyon and go to the, see the Eiffel Tower. And, you know, I want them to dream big and be whatever they want to be, you know, follow their dreams. And I remember we were in this kind of this conversation and I just said, you know, I really don't care if my kids ever see the Grand Canyon. I don't care if they ever make straight A's in their, in their you know, schools or they graduate with Vela Victorian. I don't care if they get the best job. I don't care if they buy the, the nice house with the picket fence. I don't care if they go on those lavish vacations. I don't care if they get recognition and honor at their jobs. I, you know, I do want that, those things, but I don't care if they don't ever achieve those things. What I want is for them to know Jesus and love Jesus and serve Jesus because that's what matters. Everything else in this life, scubalon. Just rubbish. Alexander the Great. Um, and this, I don't know if this actually happened, but it was said that Alexander the Great was, uh, was in his tent and uh, his servant came to go, I guess, deliver him some water or wine. And he found Alexander the Great on the floor crying like a baby. And he's like, sir, what, what's wrong? And Alexander the Great said, there are no more worlds to conquer. There are no more worlds to conquer. He spent his whole life time, trying to achieve this goal. And when he finally achieved it, it was scubalon. It was nothing. How many of us are trying to achieve that in our lives? Paul's like, don't. No, Jesus. No, Jesus. The surpassing value and worth of knowing Jesus. That's where it is. Everything else is fluff. Everything else is scubalon. Jesus is where it's at. We're going to close with a song, uh, and it's Knowing You. And I just want to real quick read the chorus to you. This song is actually, this hymn is actually based off of this passage that we just read. But the chorus says, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Do not sing those words unless you mean them. And if you do mean them, realize the implications that that means for your life. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll sing this song. So Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, um, I pray that your word was presented in a way that was understanding and that was effective and Lord, that it would change us. Your desire is, um, sorry, your desire is that uh, we would uh, become more and more uh, like your son Jesus. And so may you uh, use this word to transform us Lord. we want to see everything in our life uh, as scuba on Lord. It doesn't mean that it's not good, it's not beautiful. It's not worthy of celebration, but Lord, in the grand scheme of things, you are everything. You are it. We are to live for you only. And so Lord, may you help us to really, really embrace that. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.